0: It was released in 1981 and soon became a staple of school book fairs and libraries throughout the United States. With its ghoulish tales and haunting artwork, it terrified and captivated a generation of children. It also scandalized parents, which led it to become one of the most controversial books of the late 20th century. On this episode, we discuss Alvin Schwartz's classic, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. This is Childhood Fears Revisited. Welcome to Childhood Fears Revisited, the podcast where we look under the bed. I'm your host, Patrick. And I'm Kat. And today we're going to be talking about the 1981 classic, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Kat, how are you today?
1: I'm doing great, Patrick. How are you?
0: I am doing well, and I am so happy that I was able to share this treasure with you.
1: As am I.
0: So I grew up with this book. This was one of the seminal pieces of children's literature in my life. And I was so surprised because you're not that much older than I am. You'd never actually read or heard of these books.
1: I hadn't. Goosebumps was on my radar. But it really surprises me that somehow this escaped my notice because as a kid, I would have always been looking for exactly this kind of book, uh, scary ghost stories, things that we told at slumber parties were really up my alley. So even though this is coming late, I still appreciate it completely. This is a real treasure.
0: Yeah, it really is. I first got this book at a school fair when I was probably about seven or eight. I had it for years. I don't know where the original copy of it is, but I've bought copies of it over the years. They also have released multiple versions of the audiobook, the most recent of which was actually narrated by Patton Oswalt, which was really good. I'd recommend to anybody. So these are amazingly popular. They were always checked out of the library, always sold out at the book fair because there's just something about these stories and this genre that I think excites children. It's something that's, it always seemed a little forbidden and a little taboo because of the subject matters. And I think that's why it terrorized a lot of adults when they found out what was in the book. But it's really important to note that these tales are not anything that children wouldn't have heard otherwise. These are folklore. And this was just packaged in a much more accessible manner.
1: And I can attest to that because many of these I recognized with some variance in some cases, but it was just this really neat uh, nostalgia for the deep, dark slumber night party telling of the ghost stories and trying to scare each other. It was a real rite of passage. So yeah, this did a really good job of capturing things that I do remember the stories of. So let's talk a little bit about the history
0: of the book. It's actually a series, three books, including the original Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which was published in 1981. The follow-ups, More Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark and Scary Stories 3, More Tales to Chill Your Bones, were released in 1984 and 1991, respectively. They were written by Alvin Schwartz and illustrated by Stephen Gamel. Alvin Schwartz was a prolific writer with dozens of books to his credit, but these are by far his most famous works. These are collections of macabre campfire stories, urban legends, songs, poems, and even games. These are not original works. They're folklore. Schwartz retells stories that date back as far as ancient Greece, Something I missed as a kid is how meticulously he documents the stories and their origins. I'd recommend anyone who hasn't read these books since childhood to go back and read through the sources and bibliography sections. As famous as the stories are here, the illustrations by Stephen Gamel are even more iconic. Surreal black and white sketches... They still chill me to the bone 40 years later.
1: These are genuinely scary drawings. I don't care what age you are or where you're coming at this from. These drawings are going to sear their way into your brain. But you know what? So did the stories. So equally matched, I think, don't you?
0: Yeah, I think the combination of the stories and the artwork just make it a perfect experience for a child. There was a bit of controversy, actually, I don't know when it was, maybe 20 years ago or so. They put out a version of the book with different artwork. They commissioned someone else to do the artwork and there was a revolt. People were like, what are you thinking changing the artwork? So they very quickly moved back to the original artwork because you just can't separate the two.
1: Were they trying to tone it down, maybe? I don't
0: know. I would have to look it up. Maybe they were just trying something new, but it did not go over well with the fan base. So, as I mentioned in the opening, with subjects including death, the undead, witchcraft, and even cannibalism, these books have been the target of religious conservatives and parents' groups for decades. They have also remained one of the most popular children's book series of all time. So, let's talk about what we're going to do in this episode, Kat. We're going to do something a little different here. Rather than simply discussing these books, and we will, we'll be discussing the stories. But we're also going to honor them by offering our own retelling of some of the tales. There was a book written a few years ago called Folklore Rules by a woman named Lynn McNeil. She defines folklore as informally transmitted traditional culture. And as Gina Jorgensen notes in her book Folklore 101, because folklore is informally transmitted, there is no official version. Everyone has the right and ability to tell the stories with their own flavor and spin. And that's what we're gonna try to do a little bit of in this episode. So, when we come back, that's exactly what we will do. We will be right back with Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And we're back. The first tale we're going to discuss is The Big Toe.
1: Let's kick it off with The Big Toe. <laughs>
0: the Big Toe is a tale from the first book, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and it is actually the first story in the book. I am going to present you all with the Patrick retelling of The Big Toe. The Big Toe. This happened during World War One, not far from here. In fact, I've seen the spot. It's right off Hopkins Road where it intersects with Lakeshore Boulevard. It used to be all dirt roads and farms up there. One of the farms belonged to a widow named Sarah who lived there with her two children, Will and Natalie, who they called Nat. Times were tough back then. This area was particularly poor and ravaged by the great influenza of 1918. In those days, everyone had a garden to supply their vegetables and the children were as vital a part of the home workforce as the adults. So one hot August day, Will was tending to the family garden, and while he was digging up weeds, he found a toe sticking out of the ground. Now this wasn't just any toe, or any big toe for that matter. It was an enormous big toe, four times the size of a normal man's toe. It was a sickly greenish gray color, covered in black hairs. The underside was horribly calloused, and it had a long, thick, yellow toenail. The toe was obstructing Will's weeding, so he tried to pick it up, but it seemed stuck to something. So he tugged with all his might and the toe popped off into his hand. That's when he heard sounds from under the ground. First, there was a sort of screech and then the sound of something running in the earth below his feet. And whatever it was, it was big, but also small, I mean, it was something that should be small, but was big. Or maybe it should be big, but was small. Either way, these sounds did not keep Will from taking the toe to his mother. Sarah was repulsed at first. The torn flesh and muscles around the base were starting to rot, and the long yellowed toenail had a rusty colored substance underneath it. But then she remembered her family's situation. They were hungry, and due to rationing, they had not had any meat for weeks. Without giving herself time to reconsider, she threw the toe into a boiling soup pot on the stove. After about an hour of cooking, Sarah cut the meat of the toe into three parts, leaving the bone and the toenail in the soup for flavor. She and the children ate the toe. Sarah retched as she swallowed, but the kids didn't know any better. They thoroughly enjoyed the toe, even though Nat said it needed salt. After dinner, the family went to bed. All three slept in the same tiny room, mom on the bed and the children on two small cots. Though that night, the children slept on the floor due to the heat. Suddenly in the middle of the night, Will woke to the sound of moaning from outside the house. Nat was already awake. What is that, she said. Will didn't know, but thought it might be a dog or a coyote. Coyotes were always getting into the chicken coop. In fact, they had lost three hens the week before. Then they heard a voice from outside ask, where is my toe? It sounded far away, but also close. I mean, it sounded like it should be far away, but was close. Or maybe it sounded close, but should be far away. Needless to say, this scared the children, but their mother was still sleeping soundly. They heard the voice again, "'Where is my toe?' This time, it sounded like it was inside the house, in the main room outside the bedroom. Had Mother locked the door? Why wasn't she waking up? Again, "'Where is my toe?' This time, the voice came from below them. But how? They had no basement. And again, "'Where is my toe?' It was overhead, even though it was a one-story house. The children screamed, but their mother still didn't move. It was like she was somewhere else. Then the door to the bedroom opened. The children shook and hid under their blankets. They heard footsteps approaching. They got closer and closer. Finally, a low voice asked calmly, Where is my toe? You've got it. And that is my retelling of The Big Toe. So Kat, what'd you think about
1: that? I loved the, the context of Ohio and the backstory that you put into that.
0: Well, thank you. So I took a very different angle at the story than what is in the book. If you read Schwartz's version of it, it's about three paragraphs long. It is very matter-of-fact about the cannibalism. The child finds the toe, picks up the toe, eats the toe, gets eaten. That's pretty much all that happens in the story as told in the book. There's not really a moral to it. It's just meant to frighten you. This is what is so key about folklore and about oral traditions is the ability to take these basic outlines of stories and make them whatever you want them to be. So in my case, I decided to take the story and not make it just find toe, eat toe, get eaten. I made it into a story about desperation and about poverty and about need and the choices that people have to make when they're in desperate situations. In the book, the mother says, oh, here's a nice toe, let's eat it. There's no sense of hesitation on the part of the mother. My version of the story, there is hesitation on behalf of the mother. She knows what she's doing is wrong. She knows what she's doing is disgusting and taboo, but she does it because the family needs to survive. And that leads to their downfall. That leads to the haunting. That leads to the children getting scared or whatever happens at the end of the story because Let's face it, we're not really sure, but we're really sure what happens to the kids at the end. And that's what the art form is all about. It's about taking the foundations of a story and making it what you want it to be. A very famous example of this, and I don't know if you're familiar with a cat, is called The Aristocrats. So there was an entire movie about it. Paul Provenza made a movie about it. It's a famous joke that, comedians tell each other there's only one rule it has to end with the line the aristocrats and the whole gist of it is it's about somebody going into a talent office doing something and at the end saying the aristocrats and you can build anything you want on top of that that is pure folklore it's just something that's been passed down through generations of comics And it has been transmuted, and everybody has their own version of that joke. The same way with this. Everybody who tells this story is going to tell it their own way with their own purpose, with their own meaning, and with their own message. And I think that's the glory of this form of entertainment, so to speak the ability to make it your own. And I feel that's a magical thing because at that point, no one owns it. Right.
1: So this combines tradition, with ingenuity and creativity to develop something to keep it going timelessly. What a glorious human exercise this is.
0: Yeah. And to get back to the book itself, the time he took to research these, document these, he had to pick which Mm -hmm. versions of the stories that he was going to document because he not only had to pick a version, but he had to pick a version or develop a version of the story Mm -hmm. that would appeal to children. So all of the stories are really short. They're only a couple pages long. My version was much longer than what you would put in a children's book just because it's a lot more complex. A child's not gonna know about the great influenza Mm -hmm. outbreak of 1918. I wasn't developing that story for children. I was developing it for adults. And the audience is as much of an ingredient in the development of the story than the story is. So the last thing I want to talk about with the big toe is the aspect of jump scares. This is a jump scare story. This was a story that was told actually by Mark Twain during his live shows. And he did it in a way that at the end, he would stop his foot and reach out at somebody to try to scare them. That's the way this story is supposed to be told. It's supposed to be told in front of people. It's supposed to be tactile. You're supposed to grab somebody and try to scare them. I think a lot of horror people, especially nowadays, view jump scares as the lowest form of horror, the lowest form of scares. And I guess in a lot of ways it is. It's very visceral. But on the other hand, it's very visceral and it's a time honored tradition. Pop scares are not new things. There's a reason the stereotypical situation of getting scared is someone jumping out and saying boo you're not giving them existential dread by saying boo it's a pop scare because they don't see it coming and i think that the pop scare if done properly is a fantastic form of entertainment as most of the people who are listening to this podcast probably know i have a twitch channel where i mostly play horror games including horror games in virtual reality Most of those are pop scare-tastic and people watch me get scared on the internet for fun and they love it, they think it's hysterical watching me jump around and scream. When I jump around and get scared, I almost always immediately laugh afterwards or at least play it off for laughs afterwards. I'm a big fan of the pop scare in general. There's a reason why people go to haunted houses and wait in line for three hours just to go through for five minutes and have people jump out and say boo at them. There's something joyful about it. You get an instant rush of adrenaline when that happens, and then you get that release. So don't be putting down pop scares.
1: Well, it's recreation with your reflexes, right? And unlike the stories that I'm gonna talk about, which are designed to build dread, and have lasting haunting effects on your psyche the pop scare is is cathartic it's physically emotionally cathartic and like you often show it can easily lead to laughter and release and joy absolutely i've
0: That's why I like haunted houses. I have no problem going through haunted houses. I love when people jump out and scare me. I love the adrenaline rush. And when it's done, I always laugh and have a great time.
1: You mentioned haunted houses. So back in the old days, when I was growing up, I did organize a lot of play activities for the kids in our neighborhood and my three brothers. And one of the main staples that I did was the haunted house. So this took all day long. I would spend the whole morning emptying out the garage, carrying things out. I remember carrying out the friggin hub of a wheel, which was incredibly heavy for a kid into the backyard, bring out tires, bring out boxes of stuff. All the tools are the, gar- I would bring these all outside and put them in the backyard. Then you go in for lunch, right? Then in the afternoon, I would go out and I would set up the haunted house. I would darken the windows. I'd find all the drop cloths we had to do that with. And then I would set up little stations throughout the garage that I would have my inner circle of friends assigned to do things at. And I would go to the library. And you had staff. A staff of unpaid volunteers, much as I have developed to perfection in my adulthood. (laughs) So yes. I would I would actually go to the library and take out books on to find different activities of things to do in this. I do remember one involved using a box, a large box that perhaps a stove had been delivered in and cutting out a hole and having somebody sit in that with so that only their head showed and painting blood around the neck and they would be a talking oh. and that would be one station. And That's using amazing. the garden implements and tools in various setup structures. And of course pop scare after pop scare. You can't get enough of kids and cheats. Yeah at Halloween masks. And then we would bring in kids and I yeah I might have actually charged a dime or a quarter at some point. And suddenly my adult life is be- is making You <laughs> put
0: a lot of work in it and you had un- you had unpaid volunteers to pay.
1: And we would and I would have a f- traffic of flow and you would allow through the mandor only one or two kids at a time and they would go through the whole thing and I had a great record which I tape recorded on like a set tape recorder of scary sounds and would play that That's and fantastic. gosh I'm going to have to go back and check with my brothers and see what their memories are of that. But yeah, the haunted house was gen Genuinely legit entertainment.
0: That's fantastic. Okay. So Kat, now that we've talked about The Big Toe, let's talk about your stories. What do you got for us?
1: Okay. There are so many good ones to choose from. So uh, you've mentioned campfire stories. So I want to talk a little bit about what my experience was growing up as a little girl. I don't know if this is translatable to a little boy's experience growing up, but when I grew up, slumber parties were a big deal. One girl would hold one. One girl's family would hold one. You'd pile in. Your parents behind the scenes are probably all meeting each other, and it's probably this whole other level of interaction, right? But for us, all we know is that arrangements have been made. We are on an approved sanction overnight event. This is perhaps the first time or some of the only times that we have spent the night outside of our own homes, and we're going to somebody else's house that we may not have ever been to before, may or may not have. And we've got us, we've got a sleeping bag with us. We've got a sleeping bag, we have an overnight bag, and there has been preparation for this. There has been snacks packed. We've been looking forward to this one for a while. All right. So there's a few things that go on at the Slumber parties. There's games. There is a meal, there may or may not be cake if this is a birthday of occasion, but eventually the adults leave the kids to their own devices. You would turn down all the lights, you're in your pajamas at this point, you would get into your sleeping bag, onto your sleeping bag, somewhere on the floor, wherever you are, and you tell scary stories. It's dark, you're alone, you're with other kids, and you tell the scariest stories that you can hit. And there were stories that you would hear time and time again. Tell this one. Tell that one. There was Bloody Mary. There was, there's a light as a feather story. There was the story of Lizzie Borden. Now it's based on a true story, right?
0: In that case, did you guys do the poem?
1: Yeah, you usually would do the poem. And and some of these involved some activities going into closets, a flashlight under your face. Things like this. But this was like the high point of the night. After this, you would all go to sleep, (laughs) which is kind of funny, right? But that is how the evening progressed. So that's how I recognized most of these. And I have such fun memories of doing that at sleepovers. It was just a lot of fun. Everybody looked forward to it, everybody enjoyed it. Sometimes people got so scared that they actually cried, but it was just part of the experience. So the couple of stories that I want to talk about have on their face a few things in common, but when we dig deep, they're pretty contrasting in their structures. So the first one I'm going to talk about is a story identified in our book as Aaron Kelly's Bones. And this originally is traced as far afield as Western Africa and has come to us apparently, from a Gullah Geechee hate story. And that was a West African people who were notoriously kidnapped and brought across the ocean for slavery purposes. And I certainly don't purport to be any expert on Gullah cultures, but I did learn, it became very apparent to me, that their music and their storytelling through music and straight oral traditions were and remain to this day very profound, important traditions in this culture. As slaves, sometimes they would embed secret messages, coded messages to each other inside of these songs and these stories. So Aaron Kelly's Bones. So there was a woman who was married to a man for a long time. And he died. When he died, They had a funeral for him, they put him in a coffin, and they buried him. And one night, his wife and her family were sitting around the fire in their small house, and they heard a knock at the door. And it was after dark, and they weren't expecting anyone, but they heard the knock. She got up, and she answered the door, and when she opened it, it was her husband. But her husband was dead still dead and her husband had been dead she recognized him but he looked so different because he was starting to decay his skin had blackened and was rotted and was falling off in places but she recognized his eyes and she stood back and she went into the room and she fell down to her chair and clutched her chest in fright and everybody let out a gasp and he sat down in his chair they left it open for him. Nobody had sat in it since he had died. And he said, what's going on with you? You guys act like somebody died. Who's dead? His widow said, you are. He said, I don't feel dead. I feel fine. She said, honey, you don't look fine. You look dead. Now you'd better get back to the grave you better get back into your coffin and go down into your grave. That's where you belong now. But he laughed. He said, I'm not going to any grave. He said, I'm home. I'm gonna sit right here. I feel fine. They didn't know what to do. He wouldn't leave. He stayed in the chair the next morning. When they got up, he was still there. When they came home from work and school, he was still there. And day after day, They just got used to the fact that he was there, but they didn't know what to do about it. Now, this was a real problem for his widow because if he wasn't dead, she couldn't collect his life insurance. And if she didn't have his life insurance, she couldn't pay for the coffin. And the undertaker said if she didn't pay for the coffin, he was gonna take it back. And she told her husband this, but he didn't care. He just rocked in his chair, and warmed his hands and his feet on the fire and laughed, but his joints were dry and his back was stiff, and when he moved, he creaked and he cracked, just like the fire. So one night, the best fiddler in town came to court the widow. He'd long liked her, and now that he thought that her husband was gone, this was a good chance. So he came in, and he sat on one side of the fire with the wife. And Aaron sat on the other, creaking and cracking and rocking in his chair. And the window said, how long do I have to put up with this? I don't know what to do. And the fiddler said, this isn't right. Something has to be done here. And Aaron Kelly said, this isn't very jolly. Let's dance. Play your fiddle. So the fiddler got out his fiddle and he began to fiddle. And when he did, Aaron stood up. He shook himself off, he stretched, and he crackled and crackled as he did. He took a step or two, and he began to dance. And the wife said, he's dancing, and she said, keep playing. And he danced, his bones started rattling, his teeth were snapping, his bald head went wagging, his arms were flipping and flopping and one of his bones came through his leg and it shattered out the side and it dropped onto the floor and it clattered across the floor. And the woman said, look at that, keep playing, play faster, play faster. So he played his fiddle faster. And the fire roared and the fiddle played and Aaron Kelly clickety clack, he played and he danced and he danced faster and faster up and down the floor. His dry bones kept dropping off. His arms started dropping off. His fingers dropped off. But he kept dancing, and jollying, and hopping. His knees fell off, His went down to his legs. His legs started falling off. And he went down to his hips. And the woman said, keep playing, keep playing. And so the fiddler played as hard as he could and as loud as he could. And Aaron danced and danced. And as he did, he fell apart. And then he finally till collapsed into a pile of bones on the floor, except his head, his bald skull, kept grinning right at the fiddler, and his teeth cracked up and down with his smile as he kept dancing in glee. The fiddler did just distra- drop. He said, look at what's happening, and the widow said, play louder, play, sir. So he played as fast as he could and as loud as he could, but the skull said, oh, are we having fun? And the fiddler couldn't take it. He said, Widow, I'm going home. And he took his fiddle and he left. And he never returned. The widow and her family gathered up Aaron's bones and put them back in the coffin. They mixed them up so he couldn't fit them back together. And they buried him. And then she could pay for the coffin. Then they could bury the coffin. And after that, Aaron Kelly stayed in his grave and never came out again. But his widow never remarried. Aaron Kelly had seen to that. The end.
0: Bravo. Excellent (laughs) job.
1: Oh, thank you. Oh, my goodness. Does this story give you chills?
0: It is a very clever story. It's a fun story. It's in the chapter about humorous ghost stories. So he even says at the beginning of the chapter that it, it's a story that's supposed to make you laugh. And it does. It's, there is a farcical element to it.
1: It's got a little slapstick element to it, right? Oh, it is so visual. All right, so let's do a dive here. Now, I think that we can approach this as an actual horror story that has no moral. Now, if you could retell this, with a moral by saying perhaps the widow had been guilty of greed or betrayal toward her husband. And this was a kind of full story. The husband made sure that she could not cash in that life insurance, that she could not continue on finding another means of survival in a new husband or a new life. But that's not how the story was told here. And with with no way to tell how it was originally, i'm just going to go with the way that it's come to us now and that is this is just a pure horror story that this is what happened because it's much scarier that way so this is a reminder if there is anything to be gleaned from this as far as a lesson i think this would be a reminder that death may not have an eternal hold
0: that i think that's a good interpretation of it a couple of things that i thought of as you were telling the story when it comes to the purpose of the story, the moral of the story. One thing that stuck out to me was that it didn't seem like there are any malicious characters in the story. It seems like Aaron Kelly is just going about his business as far as he's concerned. He doesn't know any better. You've got the widow who's not trying to do anything malicious. She's just trying to get on with her life. And it's just a series of unfortunate circumstances for both of them and then a common theme in any horror story ghost story which is the emotional haunting of people by their late loved ones so you could look at Aaron Kelly as that woman being haunted by her ex-husband his memory scaring off potential suitors The story of the fiddler being somebody who the widow fancies and is interested in, who gives her a brief respite from the memory of her husband, but can never quite dispel the memory of the husband enough so that the fiddler goes away and never comes back. That's one way to look at it, but that's the story of most ghost literature or ghost movies, not how they actually haunt us, but how they metaphorically haunt
1: us. Yes, absolutely. Now, one of the things about Aaron Kelly here is you can't argue with him because he says he doesn't feel dead. He doesn't actually say, I'm not dead. Just said, you know, I don't, I don't feel dead. And he refuses to accept it. Well, you can't argue with somebody's feeling. So that makes this a really vexing conundrum. Not only the fact that he won't leave, but just that he won't accept it because, on the basis of a feeling. And he's irrepressible. Aaron Kelly is in good spirits throughout this entire story. And he's really upbeat. He wants to party. He laughs. He has a good time. And that makes me wonder if part of the point of keeping this Gullah tale going over on the shores of South Carolina was because although he has faced death itself as an opposition, he still won. Death itself can't take him down you know what never gets quashed in here is his spirit. He should feel very badly about his plight, right? He should feel badly about falling apart, about being dead, about a new suitor coming for his wife. All of this stuff is not good prospects for any being, but he is irrepressibly happy. Now, you mentioned that another way of looking at this story, which I think is a really good, excellent dive into the processes of grief about how the woman, this is a physical tale, a manifestation of how she cannot move beyond her dead husband. But Here's another way to look at this. This has a particular audience, and I think this audience is an adult woman, and that includes women of any age who have had boyfriends, who refuse to accept that the relationship is over, and he won't leave, he won't admit he's obsolete, and he effectively remains stubbornly. In his role, and that is so recognizable to women, and I'm sure to men, right? That's gotta go both ways. So the prospective suitor can't progress, and finally he's moved to abandon her himself. So he destroyed her prospect there. And he never has to admit to death or defeat or losing her. He just keeps dancing and laughing. So it's creepastic. Because the living run out of options for the battle with the dead.
0: It's so funny. You, you started with this thesis that there was no moral. And I think we've come around to there's a lot of symbolism.
1: The richer a tale is, the, I think the more directions it resonates with people for those symbols. That, so, yeah, I think that one resonates for a number of reasons there. So my next story is called Cold as Clay, but it wasn't always called Cold as Clay. Apparently, it has a much older origin story under a couple of different titles. It's also known across the pond as the Suffolk Miracle, and it's also known as the Holland Handkerchief, and the Holland Handkerchief has been translated into a song and you can find on YouTube, you can find a few different renditions of this tale as a song with a set of lyrics in an older dialect, but it's the same, it's the same tale. And this is a great timeless tale. So I'll go ahead and tell the tale, and then we can dive into some analysis. Once upon a time, there was a farmer who had a beautiful daughter and the farmer loved his daughter so much and he loved her so much that he didn't believe that any of the boys who came around were good enough for her. And she had a lot of boys come a calling and try to become her boyfriend but the father would send them away would let her know that they were not suitable. The girl actually fell in love with a Boy who worked on the farm named Jim. And Jim was poor. He was a farmhand. And her father owned the farm. And he owned a successful farm. So they were well to do. And her father did not think that Jim was good enough for his beautiful daughter. But his beautiful daughter wanted only Jim and really enjoyed his company. And the father would watch this and he knew he had to do something. So one day, the girl's father sent her away to live with her uncle who was far, far away, hours away on the other side of the county. And he did that so that Jim would be far away from his daughter. He could keep an eye on Jim and he knew that his daughter would be safe and protected under the safety of his brother's home. But after she left, Jim the farmhand got very sick and he wasted away even though he was a very young man and everyone said that he died because she had been sent away. And the farmer knew this, and he felt guilty, but he couldn't bear to tell his daughter that he had died. So the girl at her uncle's home continued to dream about her life and what it might be like if she could one day be back with Jim, and they could get married, and they could have a new life together. And she was very sad because she didn't know how that would happen or how she would be able to return to her father's home. In those days, you needed horses who could span many miles and take you across counties. One night when the girl was in the dark in her bed trying to sleep, she heard a knock at her bedroom door. She got out of bed and she opened the door and it was Jim. She said, Jim, what are you doing here? He said, well, your father asked me to come and get you. He gave me his best horse to bring you back home. She said, why, is something wrong? He said, I don't know, but let's go. We have to, we have to hurry. So she grabbed a few things and they went outside and she got onto the horse's back behind him and, and they rode off into the night. She held on to Jim around his waist and they went so fast, they went faster than the wind. It was a very dark night, and Jim didn't say anything on the entire ride, except he started to tell her that he had a terrible headache, just a terrible headache. And so she put her hand up on his forehead, and she said, Jim, you're cold. And she reached around, and she kissed him on the lips. She said, Jim, you're cold as clay. I hope you're not ill. And she took her handkerchief off and she tied it around his head so that he would have something to keep a little warm with and they finished traveling they traveled so swiftly they reached the farm and the girl quickly dismounted and got off the horse and left jim to tie up her father's horse and she ran up and ran into the door and her father was in the kitchen and she ran in and she said father here i am and he was so startled he said What are you doing here she said didn't you send for me he said no i didn't send for you she said but Jin came and got me so they went out into the night they went out and to the stable they went to this horse's stable the individual horse and he was in his stable but he was sweating and he was breathing and he was agitated and we was pacing and he said this horse looks as if it's had a terrible fright So he went to calm the horse, and they called for Jim. They called for Jim, but Jim wasn't anywhere around. Well, the farmer was very troubled by this, and his daughter was very upset and worried about Jim. So they went to Jim's family, and Jim's family was very distressed to hear this whole tale. And they said, you stop talking like this. Jim's dead and buried. But the girl insisted that Jim had brought her. And so they did the only thing that they could do. They went out to Jim's grave and the families dug up Jim's grave. They opened the coffin and Jim was lying as a corpse should in his coffin and he was quite dead. But around his head was tied the girl's handkerchief. The end. So Cold as Clay has several iterations through the ages. Some are from England, Ireland, UK, North America, and different titles. Sometimes it's a story. Sometimes it's a ballad that is sung. And the titles included The Suffolk Miracle. The Holland Handkerchief, and The Lover's Ghost. And the last version of The Lover's Ghost I will recite because that version really drives home the cautionary bent of this story, which is a warning to parents and a warning to defend true love, of course, in youth. Oh, parents, parents, a warning take. Don't chide your children for heaven's sake. Don't chide your children for heaven's sake, or you'll repent when it is too late. And in some versions of this tale, probably the earlier versions, the daughter, in fact, dies of grief once she learns that Jim has perished.
0: So what is your takeaway from that tale?
1: There's so many things to take away from this. So... This is a story on one level of the power of true love, true love between forbidden lovers and their forbidden lovers because of the differences of their socioeconomic backgrounds. And that's a timeless trope that we see, the defense of those unions across taboo lines. So on one hand, it is the power of that love to prevail. It's also a creepy, supernatural, tragic tale with lessons of consequence, consequence and the intentions gone bad through manipulation that reaches across time and death itself to right itself with justice. So this is a cautionary tale, not to the girl or to Jim, but to the father. In the father's love, in the father's good intentions, and the father's compliance with the norms of society, and the good sense to look out for his own fortune, you could even argue, for all these reasons, but chiefly for the reason of the love of his daughter, he deceived her. He manipulated the outcome of her life and of Jim's life. He stood between them. He sent her away. And he kept an eye on Jim. So he separated them. So Jim and the farmer's daughter are validated. Their choice of love is not even in question in this story. Now, this story deliciously blurs the lines of the living and the dead and what's possible beyond the grave. It does not respect that once somebody's in the grave, they're out of the picture. So Jim doesn't realize that he's dead, much like our earlier character, Aaron or Dade Kelly. Jim doesn't realize that he's dead, and he continues to act as he would have in life, which is taking an order from his employer, the girl's father, and handling his horse. I think Jim doesn't realize he's dead and he has a legitimate order. And I think where he comes up with his agenda, I'm going to speculate that Jim may have picked up on the father's yearning for his daughter after her departure, as well as the daughter's yearning for Jim. And we can now conclude that the daughter no longer needed to remain estranged. The truth has been revealed, not by Jim appearing, because he did not appear and tell her himself that he was dead. He doesn't even seem to know that. But instead, by forcing the hand of the father and Jim's own family to produce this fact and the evidence. This is an evidence-based story. So we can expect that this was Jim's last act, his final ride, because he cleared the air and righted all the wrongs that had been involved in his death.
0: Yeah, interesting, because my reading of the story was almost Jim getting his revenge on the father, revealing to the daughter that he was dead, dropping the scales from her eyes about what her father was and what he was willing to do. But your interpretation being so so less pessimistic than mine, gave noble intentions to Jim, that Jim was clearing the slate, saying, look, I'm gone. There's no sense that the father did really anything untoward Mm -hmm. to Jim. It wasn't like he murdered him. Jim died of natural causes. He just didn't tell his daughter that he died. And... Maybe Jim was just trying to, as you put it, help the family reconcile, doing what was right by his love and getting her to reconcile with her father.
1: Uh, and and I love that, that this story can provide each of us such rich fodder for each, because I can totally see it your way, too. After all, we have the father character as established in this Story universe that people are capable of manipulation. One thing that I think is really appealing about this story in our modern world is that it brings in forensic evidence, right? And this is the same appeal that we see in so many true crime stories. So it raises the possibility and and it blurs lines between the living and the dead. And even though there may or may not be, arguably, animosity at play, this story still seems dangerous. It's still a scary story. I don't think this is one of the, the stories that are designed to get laughs. I think this is one of the stories that are designed to scare and raise questions and provokes some unease with life and death as we have grown to accept them.
0: Yeah, and as you note, the evidence at the end of the story indicates that Jim did indeed raise from the grave. This wasn't a dream. This wasn't a specter. That corpse Left the grave and did something. The whole thing actually happened, and there's no ambiguity about it.
1: And let's not forget the horse either. The horse would be effectively the honest third party, impartial observer. And the fact that we see the horse is shuddering and has just gone through something is, in, in, yeah. in my mind, is is testimony to the truth of the events as she has told them.
0: Yeah, the horse isn't lying. In conclusion to all of this, we normally ask, is this as scary, more scary, or less scary than it was when you were a child? You had never seen it before. I have. Was it as scary as when I was a child? No, but it was in some ways more enjoyable as an adult than it was as a child, simply because of the historical aspects that are given by the sources in the bibliography to understand the context around these stories and to understand what they are. When I was a child, I just viewed these as scary stories to tell in the dark, full stop. But as, as an older person who has learned a little bit about the development of folklore and oral tradition And and done some study of history, understanding the meanings behind these stories and where they came from and how they have evolved over the years and how they have crossed cultural barriers makes this a much more fascinating read as an adult than it ever was as a child. I can read them and enjoy them on a much deeper level than I ever did back then. And that will conclude our episode on scary stories to tell in the dark. We hope you enjoyed listening. We will return again soon with another episode of Childhood Fears Revisited. Copyright 2023, Patrick Dobbins and Kat Ricker. All rights reserved.